Thanks, Greg. Thanks, team. If you're new to Christ Community Church, I hope you know we enjoy having children in our service with us. We think it's a good thing that kids are in service with the, the larger body of Christ, watching moms and dads worship and sing together, and just being part of the body. Now, that's the public line I have to say, but the secret reason why I really love having kids in our service is a lot of times they get bored and they begin to doodle on whatever they get their hands on. Now, here's a little picture of a self-portrait. I'm actually not going to out this person out because he actually wrote his name here. Let's see if the family's in the service. I'm not sure. But they are from our TNT group at our Awanas program. I love what he says. How did you hear about our church? My mommy makes me come here. So going to have some pastoral work to do with this family. All right. If you have a Bible, would you open to Romans chapter 12? Uh, we're going to be studying verses 12 to 21 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need to use one that's in the pew, feel free, grab it out. It's going to be on page 886. I do not want to assume uh, that, that everyone here knows how to find their way through a Bible. I know I certainly did when I first started going to a church. So let me just let you know the big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are not footnotes. That's the verse. So when I say 512, that means the fifth chapter, 12th verse. That's how that works. Because, yeah, I mean, sometimes you can assume if you go to church regularly, everyone knows how it works, right? I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and going to a church was a weird experience. There's a lot of things we don't explain to people who are new, and like chapter verse numbers are one of those, right? So Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we'll be studying verses 12 through 21 today. And, and we come to um, arguably a theologically dense portion of the book of Romans. And when we're thinking about the book of Romans, that's saying a lot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of really quickly summarize Paul's argument from chapters 1 up through chapters 5 today. This is going to be just at the 10,000-foot level because I kind of did this last week, but I want to... There's an important reason I'm doing it today because it's connected exactly into our passage. Now, we know that the thesis of the book of Romans is found in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, the reason Paul was so excited about that is because, as we know from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through for two entire chapters, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul records that all of humanity simply is doomed. And the brokenness that we experience in our lives, whether it's at the international, global, national, local, or personal level, is a result of the brokenness of the world we live in because of sin and its entrance into the world. Therefore, the only hope that humanity has to be utterly and truly free has to come from, from number one, outside of us, because inside, we're just a hot mess. There, there's no way you can read Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20 and feel like, okay, we can figure this out somehow. We're smart enough. We'll figure our way through this mess. It is not possible, right? So our hope for humanity to be free has to come from outside of us. And secondarily, it can't depend on us. And so that might lead you to some dis despair. But the reality is why the gospel is so powerful is because that is the hope that we need to be set truly free. And that's what Paul was getting at in Romans 3.21 all the way up to chapter 4, verse 23, that this gospel is in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. That was the summation of that, that section, Romans 3 to Romans 4. The result of these things are the joys of our justification, which is what we looked at last week in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We talked about those joys. Now, I can imagine at this point, as Paul is penning this letter to the Romans, I imagine he's thinking in his mind, you know, 
I, I know what I just told you about having peace with God, having access to God, having hope and sharing in His glory, having this new relationship with God, not just as servants, but also friends, just sounds too good to be true. Like you're wondering to yourself, how in the world is this possible, Paul? This cannot be the case given the condition of humanity that we just talked about for the last several chapters. This is not possible. How can you make such outrageous claims? And I can imagine Paul thinking, well, let me explain that to you. And that is exactly the role that verses 12 through 21, in our, the passage we'll look at today, that's the role that it's playing in the argument. It is the grounds of what Paul just wrote in verses 1 through 11. So Paul's thinking, yeah, you might be wondering, how is this even possible? Here's how it's possible. And with that, would you stand for the reading of God's Word as I read Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. This is Paul. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death did reign from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we jump in, let me just make a, uh, make a disclaimer here. If you are the kind of person that is used to asking always, well, what does the text mean for me? What does the Bible have for me? Uh, Over-personalizing the Christian faith as if the entirety of Christian tradition and the work of Christ was all about getting you through your day. If you're used to approaching Scripture that way, then you're going to get absolutely nothing out of what we just studied and read just now, right? That's, that's just the truth of it. But... And I've been saying this a lot of times if you come here. If you understand that the biblical narrative, while it does include you, it first has to transcend you, and that is exactly why it gives you everything you need to get through your life, well, then you're going to have something here that creates a solid gospel assurance and confidence and foundation. I'll unpack that a little bit more, but I just want to let you know, this is going to be one of those passages of Scripture, you're going to do a lot of like, Oh, I get it. And that's what we're looking at here at Romans 5, 12 through 21. I'm calling it the tale of two Adams. Verses 12 through 14, Paul introduces the two Adams to us. And then in verses 15 and 19, Paul will do a comparison of the two Adams. And then verse 20 to 21, 
It's almost like a postscript or an aside. Paul is going to then compare, or maybe contrast the better idea, the, the law and the last Adam. And hopefully it'll all become clear to you as we go along. So that's where we're going today. Let's talk about the two Adams that Paul introduces. First of all, what do I mean by two Adams? I recognize for some of you, maybe you've never even heard this expression. You know, um, This is a huge theological theme in the scriptures, and so I want to unpack it. And, it. and believe it or not, it has a lot to do with your assurance and confidence in your faith if you're a Christian. You see, what Paul is doing here, and he did a little bit of it in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, is, is making the broader point that at the end of the day, in life, there's only really one game in town. That there's only one game in town. And the winners of this game, they get life, blessing, the fulfillment of God's, all of God's eschatological promises to Israel are fulfilled to them. And the losers, they get loss, death, separation from all that is beautiful, good, and true. Those two teams, those two groups are represented by, look at verse 12, the man, or some translations say the one man, and then in verse 14, the very end of verse 14, and the one who was to come. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that this is the last Adam, we just read about that a little while ago, Jesus Christ. And so the man in verse 12 is the very first Adam, and then Paul's talking about the one who is to come, who he calls in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam or the second Adam. See, these two Adams stand as representative heads of a whole type of humanity. And every single person in this room, every single person who is alive today, every single person who has ever walked the face of this earth is going to be either in Adam number one or Adam number two. At the end of the day, Paul says, there's only one game in town. And you've got Adam 1 and Adam 2. Now, Adam 1, as you might be picking up on now, is the historical Adam from the Genesis narrative. In Adam number 1, he blew it, if you're familiar with Genesis. So everyone on his team loses. This is what Paul is explaining there in verse 12. Adam's sin brought death. If you're a note taker, write down Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. When the Lord told Adam, look, do not take of this tree. The moment you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And the evidence that all humanity is, in fact, in Adam number one is that everyone dies. And everyone dies because everyone sins. Being part of Adam's race, our DNA is to rebel against God. That's just what it means to be a human being. This is why every parent here knows, now knows, why their two-year-old is an, an apparent rebel against them. This is why no parent ever had to teach their child two words. Now, Junior, can you say it after me? Mine. Can you say it? Mine. Yes, you'll get the hang of that. You never had to teach your child that. Or no, right? No parent ever has to teach their child those realities. Why? Because it's part of our DNA to say, you're not the king of me. Now, you may be mom or dad, but I rule the roost. Mine. Mine, no, right? That, that is the DNA of humanity, to rebel against authorities, to say, I am the king of this domain, and you are my subject. Every child feels that way. They don't articulate it that way, but they act that way. And by the way, all those children grew up to be all of us, and we still go through life believing everyone on this planet exists for what? 
you. And it's proven every time someone cuts you off on the freeway, how dare you cut me off on my freeway? It's because it's part of our DNA to rebel. That's what our sin is. This is the origin of sin, original sin. So what we're seeing in Romans chapter 5 is not, not just the origin of death. Again, Genesis 2.17 makes it very clear. The result of sin is death. But we're realizing that sin is universal. Because sin is universal, death is also universal. Verses 13 and 14. Whether or not we sin like Adam did in transgressing a specific command, we sin because we are in Adam. Whether your sin is like his, you sin because you're in him. See, what Paul is establishing here in Romans 5 is this concept called federal headship. The word federal comes from the Latin fodus, which simply means covenant. It means covenant. We are in a covenant relationship either with Adam number one or Adam number two. Now, this principle that the one speaks for the many or stands in for the many should be a very familiar principle, especially if you are an American, right? You should have got that by the use of the word federal. Federal, as in the federal government, the one speaks for these United States, the many. Your congressman or congresswoman, their one vote speaks for your many votes. The one represents the many. In the same way that the president of the United States stands in for or speaks for the people of the United States. That's how this concept works. Now, you may have, ha have a hard time kind of accepting or embracing this concept of federal headship depending about whether or not you like your congressman or congresswoman or the current president, right? Or the fact that maybe you're just like me, you're an American, so you're like a cowboy and you think you can do your own thing and you know, no, nobody represents you, you're your own person. Or, like we talked about last week, you bow to the, the idol of our time of autonomy. I'm my own person, right? That, 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 all that, that's a concept of federal headship. We might fight against that. But I always notice... That, that, that concept of federal headship that we reject on one hand, we embrace really strongly when our football team scores a touchdown. Yeah, we scored! While you just sat on the couch and ate potato chips, right? You didn't do anything. But all of a sudden now, we understand solidarity with our team. Or when the Olympics come around, how often do we go and say to our friends, how many medals do we have? Like, you did squat. And how many medals did they have? It's we, because the one represents the many. This is a concept of federal headship. This is common in our culture. Adam, the one, acted on behalf of every one of us, the many. And the result is we lost. And so the plight of humanity is death, loss, and separation from all that is good, beautiful, and true. And so what Paul is doing in this section, and we'll see that particularly in verses 15 to 19, is comparing these two Adams. First, the Adam of Eden and the fall, to secondly, the Adam of heaven and the cross. In other words, friends, in all of, depending upon where you want to start it, you could say the people of God or the history of the nation of Israel, and the two are similar, but they are historically distinct, but they're the same in some sense. So whether or not you say Genesis one, were the people of God, Adam and Eve, beginnings represented us, or the nation of Israel, starting at Genesis 12, all the way through the Old Testament, through Malachi, it was very clear that, that for God's promises to be fulfilled, a new humanity is going to be necessary. 
And for a new humanity to be established, we need a fresh start. We need a new Adam to start over. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the second Adam or this last Adam. This is what he implies by the phrase, look at the end of verse 14, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, when he says Adam was a type of the one to come, what he's alluding to is the reality that all through the Old Testament, God is prefiguring or foreshadowing how Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment of all the promises that he has given in the Old Testament to us. And so it's this thing called a type, and they're typically uh, certain individuals, certain events, and certain institutions, right? So, so for example, um, the story of Joseph. Joseph, like Adam, is a type of Jesus Christ. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph in the uh, Genesis, he, here was a favored son, beloved of his father, betrayed by the very ones that should have embraced him. Though innocent, he suffers persecution, and, and, and yet at the, at the end, he's raised up to be at the right hand of the king and is the power that delivers the very ones who betrayed him. Well, what is that? That's the gospel, and it's there right in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Um, take the Exodus as another example. So what's going on in the Exodus? God, through the power of his right hand, delivers his people from the bondage and slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Well, that's foreshadowing a greater exodus, a greater deliverance that God would be by the power of his son, delivering the people of God from slavery to sin to the promised land, salvation. See, it's a, it's a type. Uh, or the temple, you get the temple motif in the Old Testament. Uh, the temple is the one place where God and man could meet together and in the New Testament, what do you have? That God and man are one in Jesus Christ. So the temple itself is a foreshadowing, a type of Christ. The point is, God is putting Easter eggs all over the place of his, of his plan of redemption for all of us. And it's everywhere in the Bible. And they're all pointing to Jesus. And so Adam was one of these types because he was representing humanity before God. We've talked about this. Man was made in the image of God, and we see in the New Testament that Christ himself is the fulfillment of that image. And so Paul is teasing out there's this, this concept of federal headship. Adam, number one, who blew it, and we know the result of that, but now here in verse 15 to 19, he's now going to talk about and emphasize what the new reality is in this Adam number two. So he's going to compare the two Adams. And we know he's making this comparison, if you look at verses 15 and 19, because twice there in verse 15, the beginning of verse 16, he has the same phrase, the free gift is not like, and he repeats it again, the free gift is not like, so he's obviously comparing what Jesus did to what came before. And we know that because twice he also uses this phrase, much more, look in verse 15 and verse 17. So he's saying what Jesus did is much more than what Adam did. What Jesus does is much more than what Adam did. So we know he's comparing it. And here are the two points of comparison. Number one, the first point of comparison is the sheer um, positiveness of the second Adam compared to the first Adam. In other words, Adam number one just brought death and failure. But Adam number two, Jesus Christ, brings life and blessing. Now, if you look at verse 15 and 16, and it gets a bit thick here, and we'll unpack it in a little bit, but Paul is emphasizing that Christ's work is greater by far than Adam's work, because Adam's influence over all of us and upon the world 
was entirely negative. Death, devastation, decay, bondage. And not just to us as a species, to the whole world. The very fabric of creation. Especially you go to... Um, uh, Romans chapter, you don't have to go there, but write down Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, and we'll get to that. It's pretty exciting. All of creation, Paul says, was, was subject to futility in the bondage of decay, and the creation itself is longing, groaning for the sons of God to be redeemed. And what Paul is talking about is when sin came into the world, it just wasn't you and I that it wrecked, but the very creation itself was subjected to just destruction and decay. And one of the joys of, of the new age of Christ when he consummates his kingdom on earth. Is, man, we're gonna, the creation itself will be freed. Friends, do you know why, you know, I always talk about this, you know why dogs bark at us? If you've been here for a while, you know what I'm going to say. Dogs bark at us because they know we screwed it up. They growl at us because they know you are the reason it's all like this. One day, it's going to be completely redone because of the second Adam. Jesus, by contrast, brought life and grace and triumph over sin. Listen to the lavishness and the language that, that Paul uses to describe just this, the work of Christ. And I'll read it. It's in verse 15 and verse 17, so you know where I'm at. It, it's, it's when Paul says, much more, and then he describes what the second Adam does. So look for the phrase, much more, in verse 15, and then the phrase, much more, in verse 17. And I'm just going to stitch those together so that you can just hear the language of amazingness that flows out of Adam number two. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, in essence, both Adams, Adam number one, Adam number two, Adam of the historical Genesis narrative and Adam number two, Jesus Christ, have, um, for lack of a better expression, epochal significance uh, as, an, as an epochs. They, they represent, they're establishing not just an era of time, but an actual state of being a whole humanity. And the Adam of Eden introduced sin, the age of sin and death, and the Adam of heaven introduced the age of righteousness and life. Now the Jews, and the Bible reinforces this idea, the Jews taught that there are really just two ages, this present evil age and the new age that is to come, Right? And it's pretty clear, what age do we live in, by and large? You just read the headlines. We live in this present evil age. But here's the, the, the radicalness of the gospel. These two ages overlap. The old age of Adam number one, it's still here, man. Just look around the world around you, the, 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 the despair, the destruction, the heartache of the world around you, sometimes in your own lives, in the relationships of your family or friends. But the new age of Adam too is also here. It's now, but it's also not yet. In other words, Christ inaugurated the new age with his life, death, and resurrection. That verse, verse 18, it's, it's one of the most powerful verses. One act of righteousness. I don't know if you've been around, but two summers ago, in the summer of 2020, we did a whole 10-week series just on this one verse, and we unpacked 
This is theological shorthand for the, the incarnation, the sinless life, the death, the resurrection, the, 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 the session of Christ, his ascension, Pentecost, and his second coming. So much is packed into this one little phrase. But Paul is saying, Christ ushered in the new age. And if you are a believer, you live in the overlap of these ages, friends. You live in the overlap of these ages. It is now the power of the gospel to transform you, to change you through the Holy Spirit in your life. But you are also living in the age of Adam. And until the age of Adam gives way to the final age of Christ, which happens at his second coming, this is why, as Christians, we have joy, we have hope and confidence in our salvation, all the while we still struggle with sin and suffering and death in this world. They're not mutually exclusive. We are the representatives of a new humanity, if you are a Christian, to those who are still in Adam number one. So the, the first point of difference between Adam number one and Adam number two is this Adam number two, Jesus Christ, totally positive. The work that he does, the influence he does is completely contrary to Adam number one. But while they are similar in some ways, they are certainly not equal in power at all because Christ, Adam number two, is able to completely overturn and reverse the effects of the first Adam. That's what we call regeneration. That, that, that is why it is so good, friends, to you, for you to remember the days before you were a Christian. Now, if you grew up in the church, praise God, and you don't know anything different, Praise the Lord, right? Your challenge is not feeling so familiar that you don't appreciate the blessing you have. If you came to Christ at an older stage of life where you remember what it's like not to be in Christ, your challenge is to forget and just kind of get into the religion of it. If you can remember what life was like under Adam number one, brother, sister, you just need to remember the joy of your salvation because it's amazing, the change. And that's the second point of comparison. The first point is Adam number two is totally positive compared to Adam one. And the second point is Adam two is so much the sheer power over Adam number one. In other words, the grace of Christ is so powerful that it can reverse the very downward spiral of what happened to us because of Adam and his sin. So much so that the righteousness of Christ can change us fundamentally even though it overcomes and comes after all of our kind of rebellion. And so this is what I'm talking about, verse 16. It's a bit thick, so let me read it to you. And the free gift, speaking of Christ's work, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, isn't it always easier to make a mess than to clean one up? Amen, right? I mean, and, and you could say it's a lot funner making a mess and cleaning up, but my point is, it takes more energy, more thought, more intention to clean up a mess than to make the mess. That's what kind of Paul is getting at here. Now, to show you a Bible translation that makes it really clear, here's a slide from the New Living Translation, uh, and that's a great, uh, great translation to read when you're trying to figure things out that might be a little bit confusing. The reason I'm hedging is, okay, it's a lecture on textual stuff. Every translation is an interpretation. Did you know that? Every translation you hold is an actual interpretation of the original text. If you read two languages, you know what I'm talking about. Language is different. It's, it's not a word-for-word word word, uh, correlation. You have to make interpretations. And the translation we use here, we made a decision. We want to use a translation that is as close as possible in the word and structure and the grammar of the original text. 
And that's really helpful to keep to the integrity of what's going on, but sometimes it's wonky in getting the meaning across because language is this way. Other translations, they say, that can be confusing, let's do this. Let's make a translation that captures the idea as best as possible. Does that make sense? They both have strengths and weaknesses. So we, I try to keep, we try to keep literal, so we keep to the text, but sometimes that can be hard like this one. Here's, a, here's a, the New Living Translation, and they're more idea for idea than word for word, and I think this is helpful. This is how they say it. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Well, that's a lot more helpful. Thank you very much. The point being, the power of what Christ does overcomes our sinful tendency to rebel against God. And so Adam number two is different than Adam number one in that Christ brought life and blessing. And the power of Adam number two is so much so that it can undo what Adam number one did. That's what we celebrate in our salvation, that we can actually change and be different. I know we're being told in our culture that you cannot change. The Bible says you can change. In fact, you must change because you are made in his image. And that's a whole other sermon, but we'll get to that later. Now, some have a problem with what I'm talking about. This is called the doctrine of original sin because they'll say this, hey man, it is unfair that Adam's sin and his rebellion is imputed to me, put on my account, even though I didn't commit the sin. Well, friends, that's what it means to be in solidarity to Adam. But friends, it's also equally unfair that Christ's righteousness and his obedience is imputed to me, put on my account, especially since I'm not the one who obeyed. But that's what it is to be in solidarity with Jesus Christ, Adam number two. I like what John Piper says. He puts it like this, when Adam sinned, we sinned and we died. When Christ obeyed, we obeyed and we lived. So friends, these notions of fair and unfair, they fall flat. And here's why. If God was being fair, if that's the kind of litmus test, and that's very big in our culture, fairness, if God was being fair, you're all doomed, right? And I'm with you. If God was being fair, we're all toast. We should be grateful that it is mercy that moves God, not our notions of fair and unfair. On that day, and we're all going to see it, when I am judged and you stand before the Lord, I do not want God to be fair. I don't want him to be fair. If you want God to be fair, one of two things is going on. And I want to say this humbly. A, you don't know yourself. You just don't. Or you've deceived yourself. When I stand before God, I don't want him to be fair. I want him to be merciful. Because if he's going by fairness, I'm done. But praise God, what Romans tells us, what we know the scripture tells us, that God is driven by mercy. And the way he can be merciful and just, right? And this is what we learn in Romans 3, 21 to 4, 25. The way he can be merciful and just is for me to be in Christ, part of a new humanity that Christ represents, not in Adam and the humanity he represents. You see, you want Jesus to be your federal head. You want Jesus to represent you. You want Jesus to be your attorney in that final court of arbitration. You want to be in solidarity with Jesus Christ. 
Let me use an illustration I think you can all get. Whether or not you are a sports person, I think you'll get this understanding. Imagine you're on a sports team. Pick your favorite sport, soccer, football, baseball, whatever. And it happens to be the case, and for some of you this is probably true, you might be the worst player on that team, right? You're just horrible at it. But you know what? You happen to be on the team with the league MVP. And it doesn't matter how many shots you miss or fouls you make or plays you goof. Why? Because the MVP, he's running circles, not just around you, but the opposing team as well. And when the final buzzer goes off, the only thing that's going to matter is what? How many points your team's got on the board, right? And even if you did nothing, and for the sake of this illustration, you did less than nothing. You racked up penalties, right? You fumbled the ball. You scored in your own basket, whatever. You were just horrible at this. And the MVP does everything. Guess what? You still win, right? Why? Because you're on the same team as the MVP, and the victories of the one, the MVP, translates to the victories of the many, all of us on the team. Imagine what the MVP says to you. He says, hey, bro, or sis, look, I just got to be honest with you. I don't have you on my team because you've got many skills at this sport. As a matter of fact, we're really being honest, you're pretty bad. In fact, you get in my way a lot more than, than you don't. But I have you on my team because I chose you. I like playing with you. I love you. That's why I chose you for my team. Even though you're horrible at this, I put you on my team because I love you. See, in essence, this is what Paul is saying. Go look at your text. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 19. With that in your head, let's hear the text. Therefore, 518, Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, I want to be clear here. If you come to this church, you might think, if you've been here for a while, I'm like really down on this personal, subjective, intimate aspect of Christianity, about our feelings being a part of it, because I'm always kind of putting that down and talking about the historic realities of what Jesus is doing. Right? I just want to be clear. The reason I do that, A, first of all, man, Christianity is a very personal and intimate thing. Amen? I mean, guys, it, it is, it includes every one of us. God loves you and he likes you. There's a power there. And if you don't know that intimacy, i got to encourage you to, to work on that aspect of your relationship with God. But the reason I emphasize the other side of it is that in our cultural time, that's what people think Christianity is. It's me and Jesus at Starbucks, or it's just me and Jesus, and that's all that matters, how I feel about it. It's what does this text mean to me, and what it makes me, how it makes me feel. I want my best life now, and Jesus is going to help me do that. The downside with that is your whole relationship, your assurance, your confidence in the gospel and all that ebbs and flows on how you feel. If you don't have the counterbalance to that of the historic work of Christ on the cross as part of God's plan to redeem the creation, whether or not you care or how you feel about it, God did that. 
if that doesn't counterbalance your emotion or your personal aspect of it, your whole confidence and assurance ebbs and flows on how you feel. But if you can counterbalance that intimate, personal, subjective aspect with the historical reality that God is doing something in time and space for all creation, and you get to be a part of that, but it transcends you, and that's your ground, brothers and sisters, that's going to transform your sense of confidence and assurance. But it doesn't work the other direction because our feelings, our emotions ebb and flow. So they got to be counterbalanced by this historic reality that at the end of the day, it's not how I'm feeling or what's going on because I'm missing shots, I'm causing fouls, I'm getting penalties. Doesn't matter because the MVP is on my team and he is racking it up on the board. And when he wins this, I get the Super Bowl ring too. And I can strut and be like, yeah, that's right. Hey, and they may not know that I did nothing. I know, but it doesn't matter because the MVP chose me because he loves me. That's what this text is saying. That's why Paul can say, guess what? The joy of your justification, you got peace with God. You have access to him. You have this new relationship, not because of what you did, but because of what the MVP did, and you're on the team. And because you are under that humanity, Adam number two, you get all the perks. That historic reality has got to counterbalance the maybe overemphasis of our cultural time of feelings and subjectivity. Beautiful as they are, need to be balanced by this historic reality. Make sense? Now, the last section, verse 20 to 21. Now, if you're reading it, you're kind of like, okay, I'm kind of tracking now with what you're saying, but what in the world? It's like a postscript here at verse 20. What is going on? Some of what Paul, but makes Paul a great apologist for the Christian faith, or a good arguer, you could say, is that he's always anticipating the objections that his readers are going to have. The challenge is, he doesn't always tell us he's doing that, and so it sounds like, where's this coming from? But if you realize, oh, Paul's probably thinking, oh, I know what they're going to say after reading what I just wrote. So so if I'm a Jew or if a a Gentile convert at this time, I'm going to say, Paul, you can't just like go from Adam and then skip all over to Jesus and forget all the good stuff in between that God did for Israel, like the law. That's kind of what they're probably thinking. And Paul, being a faithful Jew, he loves the law. Right? If you're a note taker, write down Deuteronomy uh, 4.7, where it says, what nation is so blessed? that we have a God like ours so near to us. What nation is so stoked, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so stoked, I'm using the idea for idea concept here, so stoked to have laws to guide them like we have to, do, to guide us. So amazing these laws that here we are over three millennia later basing our societies on those laws. And the closer we adhere to those laws, the better off we do, and the further we drift, the worse off we do. So Paul loves the law, but he knows while the law can count sin, he makes that clear in verse 13, while the law can count your sin, in other words, it can tell you where you screwed up because it's black and white or literally written in stone, the law can't counter sin. And so it's not the solution you think it is, is what Paul is saying. And, And that's true, guys. Whatever morality we have that we're living our lives by to establish our sense of right, it's not the solution we think it is because we'll always fail against our own moralities. And whether you are a a traditional person and you hold more traditional moralities or a progressive person who holds more progressive moralities, you are all going to fail against your own moralities. 
and, and you, you name it. And, and you, can, you can subculture it, too. If you're like an environmentalist, one day you're not going to recycle as good as you should, right? You're going to sin against Mother Earth or whatever. It, it, whatever your moral system is, you're going to fail against it. And in Christianity, when I fail against my moral system, not that it's right, but when I fail, I have a Savior that won't crush me for my failures. That uh, I have a Savior that will actually pay for my failures and give me grace. But if you can choose you, any other moral system you have, you won't have a Savior that will do that. So whatever solutions we think we have, they're not the solutions we think they are because in the end, it only exposes how much we actually fail. And so Paul, getting back to our text, is saying, look, the Mosaic law doesn't provide a solution. It's messianic grace. The one only found by being in Christ, Adam number two. You can try to live by the law, you can try, or you can live in grace. To be clear, grace does not discount the law, grace fulfills the law. Uh, I, I don't want you to be the kind of person, the Christian, that just makes a distinction like God of the Old Testament, different than God of the New Testament, as if he's bipolar, or grace and law, they're incompatible. No, it to that means you misunderstand both grace and law. The law is an expression of the character, goodness, and holiness of God, and grace is an attribute he extends to us because he knows we can never make, up, make, make the standards of the law. So we need them both. They're both important. And so the reason Paul can make the claims he did that we studied last week is because grace has been extended to us in the second Adam. It's what he did, what he does, that is accounted to our account as righteousness, not your individual lives, because your lives are hidden with Christ in him. As Paul concludes chapter 5, uh, he wraps up his presentation of the gospel that he kind of started in, in chapter 3, verse 21, this gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. The next three weeks when we study chapter 6 or 7, we're actually just going to unpack three distortions of this gospel message because it's so good, it, we can't wrap our minds around it because it's too good to be true. We end up kind of spinning it in different directions. And what I mean by that is... Um, Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote this book called The Whole Christ, and he talks about a second century church father by the name of Tertullian. And Tertullian says, this amazing doctrine, uh, just, as our Lord, just as our Lord was crucified between two thieves, he writes, this great doctrine of justification is continually being crucified between two opposite heresies, the heresy of legalism and the heresy of liberalism. In other words, what Tertullian is saying, this ancient church father, is that the gospel can uniquely hold together two seemingly impossible truths that we always seem to a ditch, we always seem to crash into one side of it or the other. And what Tertullian said is, number one, that the gospel, first gospel truth is that God is holy, which means, friends, our sin must, is required then to be punished. And after all, as we saw in Romans 1, 18 to 320, it makes it very clear, you are more sinful than you have ever imagined. To forget that truth, to forget that reality, will lead, you, you will have a, 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 a license to just live however you want. You'll be very permissible in your, in your way you go through life. And you can call that liberalism or maybe secularism or irreligion. Now, let me say this. If you don't come from a traditional background, if you weren't raised in the church, this is the error you're likely to make. You despise the idea that God is this holy God, this mean curmudgeon that will judge us for our sins. Come on, that, that's an error you might make. The second gospel truth that the gospel alone can hold together is this, that God is gracious. So in Christ, 
our sins are dealt with. After all, Romans 3.21 to 4.25 or 5.21 tells us you are more accepted in Christ than you ever dared to hope. Now, if you forget that truth, if you forget that, that can lead you to legalism and behaviorism. Now, if you grew up in a traditional society or you grew up in church, that's an error you might make. You forget how gracious and kind and, and merciful He is. Now, here's the tricky thing, though. If you get rid of just one of these truths, that God is holy and God is gracious, if you get rid of just one of them, you will either be left with legalism or a liberalism, and you will lose the joy of the gospel message entirely because now it's been replaced with, a, with religion or a kind of a secularism or, or irreligiosity kind of thing. Friends, without the knowledge of our profound sin, without really wrestling with Romans 1, 18 and 3, 20, the payment of the gospel debt, the work of Christ, will just seem trivial to you. It seems empty. And it won't have the, the power to electrify your life to realize you've been delivered from this consequence of death. But without the knowledge that Christ completely satisfied our debt to God by his life, death, and resurrection, without that knowledge, you will be absolutely destroyed by the weight of your sin. Or you will have to deny it and repress it because you can't deal with that. We, see, so basically, friends, the answer is not in religion or secularism. The answer is in the gospel, the gospel of grace that is only found in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Friends, and you have to ask yourself, where in that gospel ditch am I in danger of making? Am I, am I forgetting that God is holy and I'm not living a sanctified life and I'm not pursuing righteousness? Am I forgetting that God is gracious and I'm constantly beating myself and beating other people up to, to perform better? Where are you forgetting that gospel of grace? Because you think you've you got to be the MVP. See, the gospel helps you rest knowing, I'm on the team, i got a role to play, that's true, but I'm bad at this, but it's okay. Because the league MVP is making up for it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. We all get that ring. We all get that trophy. Not because of what we did. We can all have assurance that we have access and we have peace and the hope of glory. Because we're on the team with the MVP. We're in this new humanity. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters at Christ Community Church that we would grow in our understanding that we are in Christ. Adam number two. Adam number two who outdid Adam number one, who destroyed and overturned what he did that we might be in this new humanity represented by Jesus Christ. When we stand before you on that day or any day in between, it is not us and our merit and our worth and our works, but what Jesus did. And Lord, I pray and we, we pray that that knowledge transforms our work and our merit and our worth, not because we're trying to earn your love, but as an expression of gratitude for a Lord who loves us. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. 
For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.